the just shall live by faith, or the righteous shall live by faith. We're going to look at the book of Habakkuk, which is a prophetic book, and it's a book of questions and answers, sort of a Q&A session with the living God. The time setting of the book of Habakkuk is around 605 BC, very close to the final days of Judah. The kingdom of the chosen people has rebelled and turned away from God. And out of all the tribes of Israel, only Judah is left. And they will soon be destroyed and taken as captives to Babylon. So that's the backdrop. That's the setting. Habakkuk was a prophet of God at this time, and he has some questions about what God was doing, how God was doing it. And they may be questions that you have asked about circumstances that you have seen or experienced. And God replies to Habakkuk's questions with some unexpected answers. And throughout this book, we will be presented with what I believe is one of the most important spiritual lessons of the Bible, which is that the just, or those who would be justified, those who would be righteous, will live by faith. Go to the book of Habakkuk if you have not done so already, and I'll just, we're going to walk through it. I'm going to start off in the first chapter reading just verses 1 through 4. It's basically, this is Habakkuk's uh, question, if you will. He says, well, the prophecy that Habakkuk, the prophet, received. Starts off with his question, verse 2. How long, how long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save why do you make me look at injustice? And why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed. And justice never prevails. And the wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Habakkuk sees the decay and the decline of his beloved Judah, his beloved nation. And he's been praying to God, sighing and crying for what he sees happening. But nothing's happening. Things aren't changing. His prayers aren't being answered, at least not in the way he expects them or hopes them to be. God is not punishing the evildoers. That's not what Habakkuk sees going on. And Habakkuk asks, how long? How long? How long do we have to go through this and experience all this? How long until you act? Now, the sorry state of the people of Israel, um, I thought it dovetailed nicely into some of the scripture reading that we've done in Samuel, first book of Samuel. Because the sorry state of the chosen people of Israel is, I believe, 
the inevitable consequence or consequences of their request for a king, a human king. So the problem goes all the way back, at least, probably even further, but let's take it all the way back to Samuel 8, verse 18. Don't go there, because we've read it already as a congregation. Israel expressed a desire to be ruled by other men rather than ruled by God. It's a wrong-headed desire. It's just, <laughs> it's just wrong on so many levels. It's a wrong-headed desire that is also the story of human history. This is what we do. We'd rather be ruled by other people than by God. Now, getting back to Judah, the last of Israel, there was a king, King Manasseh, and he was a pretty bad king. You can read about him in the book of Second Kings. But Manasseh was, he was a bad king. He, basically, he was kind of like the last straw. Straw that broke the camel's back. He led the entire nation into a whole new level of uh, idolatry, rebellion against God, occult, just plain, naked, occult practices, and sexual perversion. Now, lest we all think, uh, uh, you know, well, it's Manasseh's fault. Don't forget that the people of the nation were all too willing to follow him. He led them, but they followed. God's judgment was made. You read through the book of Kings, you'll see it. If you read through the prophets, you'll see it. God saw this and he said, you know what? It's, I just have made up my mind. I've assessed the matter, I've made up my mind. And so dishing out the punishment that was due was just a matter of waiting for the appointed time. And you know that Manasseh is not the last king of Judah. There's more, but God had made up his mind. It was settled, it was done. It's all headed towards the appointed day, the appointed time. Now Habakkuk had this question, how long, how long? And then we'll read God's response in a little bit, but let me just give you a, a bit of a perspective on God's response. It's worth pondering, I believe. Because what God comes back with reminds me of the instances where people asked Jesus a question. And they would ask him a question, you know, and there's instances where there might be some scholar in the law or some legal expert, and they would try and ask him a zinger, you know. <laughs> Catch him. Catch him now. And the response they get kind of startles them. Well, that wasn't what I was expecting. You know, the, the question about taxes, you know. And Jesus says, well, whose who's picture's on the coin, right? And people are kind of like, Because the answers they got from Jesus, the answers that God gives Habakkuk, do not fit into the box. They don't fit inside what flesh and blood humans think are the acceptable or possible answers. We're pretty limited in our scope and our perspective and how things could, should, or will be. But God is eternal. He's just on a different level than us. 
he has a completely different perspective on the same events. And he says all kinds of stuff, but he says things like, just remember folks, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My thoughts are not your thoughts. So, you know, God's response, if you ask God a question, you may be surprised by the answer you get. Oh, I wasn't expecting that. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Um, God's like that. So let's take a look at God's answer, already. The living God is going to answer Habakkuk, and he also asks, how long? God asks, how long? How long? How long will you refuse to hear my commands and obey me? How long? And he too agonizes over unbelief, lack of faith, lack of follow-through, lack of commitment. God sees and he feels distress over Israel and over Judah more deeply than Habakkuk. I mean, Habakkuk, yeah, he feels it, but God feels it deeply. His solution, though, is radically different from what a man like Habakkuk would have dreamed up. But the risk of putting words in Habakkuk's mouth, I would probably expect him, you know, a guy who loved his country, to suggest a program of uh, social reform. Let's have, let's have a renewal of you know, this or that. How about a spiritual renewal, a revival of all that's good in the nation? That's probably what you or I would come up with or have a cook. That is not what God answers, though. God says, Habakkuk, prepare to be utterly amazed. It's going to blow you away. I'm going to do something you would not believe. God's judgment and the subsequent punishment was going to be so devastating, so overwhelming, that you or Habakkuk could easily doubt that it was really from the hand of God. Unless you have the perspective of faith. Unless you look at it through the eyes of faith. In Habakkuk, go to verse 5. Let's read through verse 11. This is God's answer. Look. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They're a feared and dreaded people. They're a law unto themselves. And they promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping to devour. And they come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like the desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings. They scoff at rulers. They laugh at fortified cities. They build earthen ramps. They just capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people. These are bad people. Guilty people whose own strength is their true God. Wow. 
This is God's answer to Habakkuk. (laughs) So God's plan was to destroy the kingdom of David. Using a surprising instrument, the wicked, evil, violent, proud nation of Babylon. That was a surprise. Now, historically, I'm not going to go into, you know, Babylon history and that. The Babylonian Empire rose up very, very quickly on the world scene. Um, It takes about 50 years for them to become a major superpower. Babylon's decline would be equally fast. They rose fast and they went down very fast. Babylon was a very short-lived empire at that time. It's almost as if their only purpose for being was to do God's bidding and then disappear from the scene. Almost, eh? Now we're going to see that God's reaction to Israel's rebellion, really, he wants us to understand it by fitting it into his larger plan for humanity and his larger plan for judgment. And I put it to you that knowing this long-term plan, larger plan, big picture, this is a way to build faith. It's not the only way. But knowing what God's up to and knowing he is working a plan is a way to build faith. Faith you can live by. So what happens next? Well, Habakkuk heard what God said and he questions God's plan of punishment. Okay? Habakkuk questions God's planning out this punishment and the way he's doing it. Let's read verses 12 through 13. Lord, this is Habakkuk speaking, uh, are you not everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. You, Lord, you've appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them for punishment. Your eyes are, are, but your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? And why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Question. This is this is his question. How how is it justice that you would punish? Judah, using a nation that is far worse. How does that, how is that justice? Babylon's far worse. Aren't they more deserving of your wrath? Doesn't it make more sense for you to go after them? They're the bad guys. Why wouldn't you judge Babylon first? Let's pick it up in verse 14. He goes on, talks more about Babylon. You've made people like the fish of the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his own net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by this net he lives in luxury and enjoys choice food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? 
Habakkuk, basically he's providing a little bit more detail. He's kind of going on about Babylon. This is, this is what these people are like. They're awful. They're cruel. They're godless. They're relentless. And they're going to destroy Israel without mercy. So relatively speaking, and this is the issue, relatively speaking, one thing relative to another. Relatively speaking, Babylon is worse than Israel. They had their problems. But among the nations, they were probably the least bad. <laughs> but, you know, Habakkuk's looking at that and he's saying, well, shouldn't the worst offenders be dealt with first? Shouldn't they be the ones you come down on the hardest? Doesn't that make sense? Not how you think? Are you? Are you? So, why would God be more concerned with punishing Israel, or Judah, that which is left of Israel? Why would God be more concerned with punishing the chosen people than Babylon? Even though Babylon were way worse. Answer? Because Israel knew better. They knew better. They had the commandments. You know, we've, we've looked at that in the past few weeks. They had God's laws. They had God's statutes. Even if they didn't have the spirit of understanding, they had the information. They had all this. Not only that, but they had God's very own presence among them. They knew better. Which brings us to a very important principle which we can apply to ourselves, and we will apply to ourselves. Biblical principle. To whom much is given, much is required. To whom much is given, much is required. Now let's say we look at our situation here, 21st century America. Perhaps you sigh and cry for the sins of the USA. I think you do. I know I do. I look around, I see stuff, and I think, oh, how long? How long? I kind of wish God would fix it. Now, perhaps you ask God to address crimes and injustice, which you see all around you. How will God deal with our nation? I think it's a scary thing to consider. Because here we are, a nation where, you know, the average person probably has three or four Bibles in their house if they, if they want them. Some people don't want them. A nation where the Bible is readily available, whether it's in print or online, TV. It's a nation where there is freedom to preach the truth without fear. Aside from all the stuff you hear in the news, it's still possible to preach the truth. Come on. A nation that knows better. I believe that judgment is coming upon the USA. I don't think it's going to be pretty. I think it's going to be bad. So there's that biblical principle again, to whom much is given, much is required. And I just threw that in kind of as a way to just think about current circumstances. Maybe you're like Habakkuk. 
You're wondering how long. So what, let's get personal. What about us? What about the people of God, the church of God? We have been given much, a lot, more than Israel. You've been given the information, but you've also been given the spirit of understanding, the spirit of God's presence among you. You've been given a lot. You have people to teach. You have a place to gather. What does God expect of us? What is he hoping for, wanting to see from us? Do we make perhaps the same mistake as Habakkuk? Do we make the same mistake? What mistake is that? By defining our own righteousness by comparing ourselves to others. It's another principle you find in Habakkuk. Is that, is that something we do? Do we, we see ourselves as well, you know, I know, I know I've got my problems, but what about him? Well, how about him or her? Reminds me of when Peter was talking with Jesus and Jesus said, you know, you're going to suffer. And he pointed at John and said, well, what about him? <laughs> That's not the only instance I can think of. I mean, the scriptures say you're a fool to compare yourselves one, one amongst another. Do we make that same mistake by looking at ourselves and considering ourselves righteous by comparing ourselves to people who are even worse? That's a mistake. And I brought that up because there's two ways that that affects us. One, when we're talking big picture, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is not defined by being an incremental improvement over the kingdoms of human origin when they're all done away, when they're wiped away, when the king of kings returns and smashes them to pieces, that is a reset. It's not tinkering with the machine to fix it. It's taken down to the very foundations. In fact, the foundations are removed because the foundations are what's wrong. That desire to be led by other people, really to rule ourselves rather than to submit ourselves to God. And in the same way, on a personal level, the people of God, the church of God, you, me, are not declared righteous. We're not just because we're better than the next person. You might be. <laughs> you might be better than the next person. And if you set the bar of success low enough, you're bound to fall over it and succeed. That's not how we define righteousness. The people of God are declared righteous. How? The people of God are declared righteous through a total dedication to holiness. Because you're ripped down to your very foundations and built back up again from the get-go. And it will be the same way with the nations. That's why God was going to just completely destroy Israel. We can't build on a rotten foundation. And multiple times in scriptures, I'm not going to go through them, we are warned not to consider ourselves good or virtuous or righteous by comparing ourselves to other human beings, but by comparing ourselves to God. Because that's the plan. And each of us, and I think this is a matter of faith, that's why I'm putting it into this message that the just shall live by faith. 
Each of us must have faith in God's good and righteous judgment of you, of you, you and me, that God sees it and he will judge righteously and have faith in that and focus on our own path of overcoming. Not worrying about her or him, but focusing on our own path of overcoming rather than on how others need to be judged or corrected or other nations need to be punished. Let's take a look at what God says to Habakkuk. So Habakkuk's had his first question. He had a second question, which is, you know, what about, what about them? They're worse than us. How does God answer this? Well, first, well, let's just take a look at um, Habakkuk finishes off his question this way. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, okay, I've asked my questions. And he, he sort of realizes how audacious he's been. And he says in verse two, uh, sorry, chapter 2, verse 1, I will stand at my watch, so I'm going to step back and station myself on the ramparts, and I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to his complaint. So he steps back from his question, and he realizes he's, he's really put it out there. <laughs> he's, he's questioning the methods and the purpose of the living God. And he expects to be rebuked, but at the same time, he's already kind of preparing himself to dispute the matter further. Well, I'm already thinking of my response to what God's going to say. So God answers Habakkuk in verse 2. And God's going to help Habakkuk. He's going to help him understand. How? By giving him a big picture view. And ask him to step back or, you know, fly at 40,000 feet. I want to show you how it's all going to work here. A big picture view of God's plan for dealing with the nations. And having this long-range view builds faith. It builds faith. Having this long-range view of God's plan and purpose for you, for nations, gives meaning and purpose to human experience, to human suffering, and human history. So I put it to you that knowing the big picture Knowing the big picture and the scriptures that back them up is worthy of your attention. It's worthy of your attention because it's a way that we build faith. Take a look at verse 2 of chapter 2. And let's just read 2 and 3. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald, an announcer, may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time, and it speaks to the end, and it will not prove false. Though it lingers, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. God begins his answer to Habakkuk by saying, okay, here's my answer. I want you to write it down so it can be shared far and wide, and off into the future for people like you. And from the human perspective, waiting for justice to be done may seem like a long time, may seem like a long wait, and it may even seem like it's forgotten, not going to happen. But God says it's certain, and it cannot be averted. And it's an answer that was meant for Habakkuk in the day, 
And it's also an answer that is meant for you to read today, as he says. This is for the end. Write it down. Now, God's answer is going to take us to the end times, but it also reaches back into the past. It goes in both directions, I think. Remember the golden-headed image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream? We went through that a couple of months ago. Well, that image is a story told in pictures of humanly devised self-government that takes over the world scene after the demise of Israel, after Israel is indeed crushed. And it takes us all the way from that time to Christ's return as king of kings. Well, that's, that, that's moving into the you know, end time. But the story of Babylon actually goes backwards as well. The story of Babylon goes back to the very beginnings at Babel, the tower. We see what role Babylon plays at the time of Habakkuk. They're the hammer that smashes the last of Israel to pieces. And we also know that Babylon is the name for the end time government of the beast. So it goes backwards and forwards. Because Babylon is the name that's given to human desire for self-rule. To be ruled by men rather than ruled by God. That's what Babylon is all about. And that is a rule that is confusion. That is a rule that is violence. That is a rule that is injustice. That is a rule that's built on the wrong foundation. Now, Habakkuk. A guy like Habakkuk, he, he didn't have complete understanding of what he was told. The understanding of all the ins and outs and the times and the dates and all that of how things were going to unfold in God's grand plan were not given to men like Habakkuk. Much of that's not given to you or me at this time. As I've said before, much of prophecy can really only be understood and have that power and that impact after it's happened. So Habakkuk, if you think about you know, the man hearing this response, well, he would have kind of been in the same boat as Daniel, who was told, go about your business, Daniel. The details of how this all comes to pass are sealed up until those, until those days when it happens. But to believe without seeing takes faith. It is a matter of faith. Go to Hebrews 11 and read about faith. So the scriptures say to believe without seeing takes faith. And in some ways it is faith. And the just shall live by faith. Okay, verse 4. See the enemy. We're looking in the future. He's puffed up. He's proud. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person, the just, will live by faith. 
So God says, okay, look, the, the puffed up, the one who's not humble, we had a little bit of um, discussion about humility in the first message. The puffed up, the proud, cannot be just, cannot be righteous. They just can't, because the proud is a law unto himself, which is the whole foundational problem. A desire to be ruled by other men, or rule ourselves, rather than to be ruled by God. The proud does not accept revelation, and therefore cannot be granted life everlasting. But the humble believe what God says, which is just another way of saying faith. And for them, his word is a pathway to life everlasting. So truly, the just shall live by faith. God is now going to address, in the next little section here, how judgment comes to all nations. 5 through 7. Indeed, wine betrays him. He's arrogant and is never at rest because he's greedy as the grave and, like death, never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations, takes captive all the people. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn? This is looking forward to the time when he's knocked down saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? How long? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will, will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. So human, human nations, human governments, they're drunk. That's, that's the symbolism of wine. They're drunk. They're not drunk on booze. Human nation and governments are drunk, they're intoxicated, they're mixed up, they're muddled in their thinking by false ideas. Disinformation. Deception. Dogmas and doctrines of men. <laughs> Unlike the people of Judah who followed Manasseh, humanity likes it that way. They like it that way. Tell me lies. Tell me sweet little lies. They like it that way because those lies appeal to the flesh. So we're all in it together. And in answer to the question, how long, God says, well, it's going to come upon you suddenly. Your creditors will come suddenly and they'll want to be paid. Humanity might be able to delude themselves that because God's judgment does not come quickly, that perhaps it won't come at all. But they don't understand what's going on, the long picture, that the living God is patient, but that patience is so that people have ample time and ample opportunity to change, repent, and ample time and opportunity to prove that flesh and blood cannot build the righteous kingdom. It just isn't in us to build the righteous kingdom because it's a wrong foundation. Let's go to verse 8. Because you have plundered many nations, the people who are left will plunder you. For you've shed human blood, you've destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, settling his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You've plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that a people's labor 
that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, for the nations exhaust themselves for nothing. In this section, God is pointing out that he's very concerned about non-religious issues. It's not all just about Sabbath breaking or idolatry. God is very concerned about the non-religious issues of man's inhumanity to man, inhumanity to one another. God saw the Holocaust. God saw the atomic bomb dropped, the people melting away. God saw the slavery. God saw the centuries of religious war. God saw the oppression, the poverty, and the human degradation, and the cruelty. But he did not speak because the appointed time had not come. He gives humans time to speak out. In fact, I think he wants to see if we're going to do anything about stuff. He gives human beings time to speak out, but we do not. We don't. Usually, at very best, we simply replace one set of sins with another set of sins. Equally heinous and unjust, because that's how we roll. Our materialism, our wealth, the stones of the wall, our technology, they lead us astray. Your technology is not your friend. It's a tool, but it can lead you astray. And like the stones of the wall, that which is built by human hands, they're gonna, they'll cry out against you. Look at all the stuff you've done with your technology. And they'll be part of our downfall. And as it says there, <laughs> all of its vanity and fuel for the fire. God says, people are they're working themselves to the bone for nothing. Because they're building all their building on the wrong foundation. A foundation that is going to have to be wiped out. Verse 14. For the earth, remember that we're looking forward to the end here. It says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I know you've heard that scripture before. It's important. In this context, though, let's consider it this way. Everything that humanity has built up and worked for will be wiped out. Taken down to the foundation and the foundation will be dug up and... Because the foundation is wrong and it will be replaced by a culture and a society filled with the spirit of God, built on the spirit of God. Because that is how righteous government will be established on planet Earth. Verse 15. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they're drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies you will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you, for you've shed human blood, 
and you've destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. So human governments, cultural institutions, all this stuff that we've been talking about, I've been talking about, false religions, they're going to be exposed. They're going to be exposed, stripped naked of all their fancy clothing and that which makes them look, you know, wonderful and desirable. Stripped naked, objects of shame. Because when you think about the King of Kings, you think about the time that is ahead of us, uh, before learning can happen, before building can happen, there's going to have to be a lot of unlearning. Lies have to be exposed. They'll have to be laid bare. All this stuff you thought was true, the basis for moving forward is no, no, no. And that reckoning is not just for those who live through the day of the Lord and who are there when Christ establishes the rule of God on earth. Remember, too, that when Jesus talks about the resurrection, that time when the rest of the dead are raised, white throne judgment, he says to the audience at hand, the people of Chorazin, that some of them were in for a very rough time. So let's not be naive that the second resurrection is just going to be one great big family reunion. That's part, you know, that's part of seeing someone resurrected to life, yes. But when the rest of the dead rise up, there will be a vast population of people with hardened attitudes, deeply encrusted layers of corruption and greed, personal vanity, and they will have to come to repentance. People like the men of Babylon, if you will, but more. A lot of people have walked the face of the earth, have they not? And God will deal with them. And he says that, you know, the time will come, and it will come, and I will see to, see to it that it, it comes to pass. What you need to know, O church of God, is that your time is now. This is the time when God deals with you, when God judges you, Judgment begins with the people of God, with the house of God. And he is preparing you through this now so that you will be able to help him deal with all those people that come later who need to learn the right foundation. Verse 18. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who made it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? Is it not covered with gold and silver? There's no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. That's the end of God's words. He says all the people, all the stuff that people have created whether it's material objects like an idol, or whether it's simply an alternative reality of lies and self-delusion, is worthless before God. It is only belief and obedience to God and to his will that is of any lasting value. To see this clearly, to remain silent before God, and to live by his will, takes faith. Just shall live by faith. So Habakkuk 
Now, I guess he kind of uh, thought better about his response and his comebacks to God because he ends with a song. It's a song. It's uh, pretty cool. Let's take a look at it. It's a song that's kind of like him saying, yeah, get the vision. I see what you're talking about. And it starts off with a vision of Christ, the returning Christ. Verses 1 through 12 says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day, in our time, and make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon, the Holy One from Mount Paran. These are the mountains around Israel. His glory covered the heavens, and his praise filled the earth, and his splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand, where his power was hidden. Plague went before him, pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled, and the age-old hills collapsed, and he marches on forever. I saw the tents of Kushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? You uncovered your bows. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. And in wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. Habakkuk can visualize the king of kings returning. And striding, if you will, like a colossus over the face of the earth. Uh, with great power, using that power to do what? To put down rebellion, pouring forth his righteous wrath. And that wrath of God destroys sin and oppression and greed, racial hatred, sexual perversion, and religious deception by eliminating it to the very foundation. You can't fix this stuff by redirecting it. You gotta take it right down to the root. Verse 13. You came out to deliver your people, the salvation of your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness and you stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. Remember, this is the end Habakkuk's looking towards. He sees the salvation that comes from the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. That's what the Messiah means, what Christ means, the anointed one. And that Messiah, that anointed one, what does he do? One of the things that he does is he overthrows Satan. The leader of the land of wickedness. The head of the household of the wicked. The true leader of wickedness, deception, and lies. And what's going to happen? He, once again, he says, you will be stripped bare. All your fancy clothes, 
and everything you do to look snazzy that people fall for you will be stripped off and you will be exposed for what you are. People are going to have to see it. It's not going to be pretty. They're not going to like looking at it, but they're going to see it. It's going to be exposed. I'm going to show them the foundations of what they've been dealing with. Verse 16. No more disguises. Verse 16. Habakkuk says, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I waited patiently for the day of calamity. It will come on the nations. That will come on the nations invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. And then he gives all this to the director of music and says, let's sing this. So the faithful believer, the just who will, be, who will live by faith, may be frightened by all the calamity they see around them. You may live through some things like that. The faithful might have to share in the ravages of drought, or famine, war, oppression. And the faithful might be tempted to doubt how can this be of God? But through faith, you can have peace of mind. Peace of mind. Confidence in God's righteous judgment and hope of resurrection. And a faith that is built upon firm foundations. A foundation of trust and obedience toward the living God and faith that is built on a confident expectation that these events, the righteous judgment, will come to pass. And in this way, the just shall live by faith.